Aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, and looking forward to today, it's Lesson 3 of a six-part program called Fly. Learn to fly, feeling like yourself. We're a third of the way through, and when we finish today, we'll be halfway through. First two programs that we did two weeks ago and then last week really should be listened to before you listen to this program. And so whether you're listening live or listening to a replay like a stream or a podcast, it's okay. These programs stand alone. You'll get a lot out of it. But let me put it this uh, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. If, if you're about to listen to this session number three, which is called uh, the language of feelings, and it turns out that you really like it or find it valuable, I think you'll get even more out of it if you go back and listen in order to sessions one and two and then this one and then four, five, and six down the road. Okay, This is a core personal development training. It's simple. It's very basic. It really just scratches the surface, but it provides you with some really valuable tools or skill sets that you can use for the rest of your life, and hopefully you will. Um, and each of the six classes is really a different application of meditation and self-hypnosis skills, visualization or guided imagery exercises to help you tap into the extraordinary power of the subconscious mind and lead you eventually uh, as a portal of sorts to a sense of who you truly are, a higher self that you can uh, access on demand. You, you know, we all have occasions where we experience spontaneous insight and understanding where the clouds seem to clear for an instant and then we get a, a, a sudden burst of awareness, uh, a eureka illumination or an aha and uh, it can run the gamut from being thunderstruck like lightning, you know, oh my God, you know what I just realized, uh, to, you know, the dawning of a new idea. Do you know that phrase? The light comes up rather slowly. It's like, wait a minute, hold, <laughs> hold on, I'm starting to get something here. Or somewhere in the middle, I suppose, the uh, the classic archetype of the light bulb coming on. But that's the intuitive nature, and that's one of two basic reasons to use meditative hypnosis, is to stand open and receptive to these brilliant ideas, solutions, answers uh, that you've been looking for. Uh, they're available to you, but you have to still the body, quiet the mind, and uh, calm, I wanted to say tranquilize, uh, become calm and undisturbed in your emotional nature. Tranquil, I guess, is better, <laughs> better than tranquilize. But uh, do people still use that word, tranquilizers, like, you know? The downers, the mood-altering drugs, they used to be called tranquilizers. 
Anyway, when you still the body, quiet the mind, and uh, become emotionally peaceful and calm, tranquil and undisturbed, uh, amazing things happen in terms of this light or this awareness uh, coming in. Then the flip side of the coin is the uh, self-hypnosis part of all of this. Same level of mind, same relaxed and safe place, but now we're talking about mental rehearsal. And in sessions four and five, we're going to explore meditation and hypnosis in problem-solving and decision-making. And we'll talk about applying meditation to those problems where you have no idea what the solution is. You wouldn't know it if it were right in front of your face. And self-hypnosis or mental rehearsal imaging as if you already have a desired goal um, kind of super positive thinking on, uh, <laughs> on steroids if you will for those kinds of problems where you do know what you want but uh, you're not sure how to get there how to get it or make it happen it's funny usually school uh, is limited to the first kind of problem and school tends to teach you that in the real world, the only kind of problem you'll ever have is one in which you do not know the answer. And it's about finding the answer, finding the solution. But you get out into the real world after school and you find it's very frustrating because in addition to those kinds of problems, there are many others where you know the answer. You definitely know the answer. You're just not sure how to get it or get there or or make it happen, so-called. You don't know the right people. You don't have enough money. Uh, you're afraid of what would happen if you did go ahead and do it, the consequences of it all. And uh, so we're going to approach that in sessions four and five next week. Um, let's see, what would be the 23rd of May and then the 30th of May the following week and then first week of June. We'll finish up the six-section uh, training. By the way, I did this whole series, a six-part series, about a year and a half ago. So if you check out our website, you'll hear another version of this same series from 2008. And you may want to compare and contrast. Again, this is a valuable training. One-on-one, uh, -on -one, uh, This I'm still doing it by telephone. Uh, from Maui, and one-on-one, -on -one, it's uh, about $1,500 to take this training. Of course, you get the advantage of it being personalized and customized to meet your needs. As a career training, uh, this was the heart and soul of 160 classroom hours. And that program, I think I mentioned last week, uh, uh, we, we uh, offered that for $4,000. Again, it was a lot of teaching, a lot of book learning. Uh, well, I loved doing it. I did it in L.A. for several years before moving to Hawaii a couple of years back. And many people took that class and went out and made a career out of teaching meditation and hypnosis in these two areas. Um, today we're going to do part three. As I said a minute ago, this is the the third of three parts on emotional intelligence. Uh, part one, a couple of weeks ago, is self-love, 
part two is healing childhood hurt, both of those emotional intelligence. And then today, well, how do we interpret or, or translate the meaning of our current emotional feelings? How do we understand uh, what we feel? What are those emotional feelings that we're having right now tell us about ourselves? So the first three, the first half of these six programs, uh, classes in personal and spiritual development, learn to fly, feeling like yourself, are all emotional intelligence. And then four and five, as I just indicated, problem-solving and decision-making, sort of a mental approach to things. And then the last session is um, a look at peak performance. A little on accelerated healing, and maybe we'll talk a bit about accelerated learning as well. So of the six programs, the first three are emotional, uh, four and five are mental, and number six is physical performance. Okay, those are the three parts of the self, emotional, mental, and physical. So let's begin to talk then about uh, today's concept of title of this third session is The Language of Feelings. I have a number of titles that I, that I use for it, but I guess that's probably the, my favorite one. That's the one we settle in on, The Language of Feelings. So what do we mean by the language of feelings? I think to mention that the whole concept of emotional intelligence or an emotional intelligence quotient, an EQ, in addition to the IQ, is barely a decade old. Uh, lots of us in psychology and sociology, uh, hypnotherapists and personal development trainers have been talking about emotional intelligence for a long time, for maybe three decades or more. But it was really the work of Daniel Goleman at Harvard University, I think, that um, created a kind of a seed thought around which all of this work crystallized. He's certainly not the only person in the field, but his work is pioneering, and I'd like to acknowledge Daniel Goleman, no D, just G-O-L-E-M-A-N, Daniel Goleman, uh, at Harvard for his several books on emotional intelligence and creating the whole idea. There's four areas, according to Goldman, of emotional intelligence. The first two are about you, and the second two are about the world around you. And it's imperative that you move in that order when you deal with emotions. Because, um, you know, those schoolyard axioms, if it takes one to know one, or I know you are, what am I? You know, those childhood taunts are really quite to the point. You cannot know anything about other people that you haven't already explored in yourself. Just as you cannot love another person or receive love from another person beyond the amount of love that you have for you, how could you understand any negative emotion in another person if you're not willing to face it in yourself first? Empathy is much more important than judgment. When you hear uh, religious prophets, saints, and sages 
admonishing you not to judge. Perhaps it would be helpful if you remember what they mean is to be empathetic instead of judging. We do have to have an understanding of other people, but it could be an emotional rapport rather than a mental uh, judgment, which is much more abstract, much more critical. So the four areas of emotional intelligence, according to Goldman, are first self-awareness, and then self-management. You have to be aware that you're feeling a feeling while you're feeling the feeling. You have to be awake enough to catch yourself when you're angry and say, hey, I'm really angry. And I'm not at my best when I'm angry. So instead of just allowing this anger to to drive me, I've got to breathe and relax and and just like you would rein in a wild horse, you know. You can't be carried away with your emotions. You've got to be the, the driver, uh, the trainer, the one who manages your runaway feelings. Um, and the second, then, would be um, the management, uh, uh, self-awareness and then the self-management. We'll talk today about how to manage and understand your feelings. And then... Parts three and four in Goldman's model uh, are empathy, uh, understanding or being aware of other people's feelings, empathy, and then to manage the relationship would be number four. So self-awareness, self-emotional management, empathy, and relationship management. Again, you cannot manage your relationship with other people until you've... (laughs) gotten pretty good at managing your relationship with yourself. So tip of the hat to Dan Goldman and uh, other people who are working in the field now of emotional intelligence. Your success, here's that 80-20 rule again, your success in life, in business or elsewhere, is 80% emotional and 20% mental product knowledge, for example, is maybe, you know, a fifth of it, the vast majority, the 80% of your success is how do you handle people? Do you have social skills? Are you a leader? Do you know how to resolve conflict and avoid it in the first place? Do you know how to inspire people? Do you know how to be sensitive to their needs? Uh, Where do you practice that? With yourself, learning to manage yourself, all right? So now that we know there is such a field as emotional intelligence, although it's relatively new, consider that many people still scratch their heads and say, Michael, emotional intelligence, what are you talking about? Uh, When I get emotionally worked up or when I see other people getting emotionally freaked out, uh, they don't get more intelligent, they get less intelligent. Yeah, that's usually the case. So... It's very important that we understand up front that second bit about managing the emotion. Emotions, in order to be understood, need to be managed, need to be framed or placed in a relaxed and safe context. Uh, Emotions that are upsetting and hurtful and stressful are very difficult to understand. You are 
in a, those cases in a fight or flight uh, mode. Uh, everything in the brain is telling your body to uh, tighten muscles and to trade out intelligence for physical strength and speed and agility so you can fight or run. And hear me clearly, there is a trade-out for that. You tend to get stupid. You're easily confused, and the whole world is reduced to either or, everything or nothing. If you find yourself at times doing that and missing the third way or the fourth option or the fifth possibility, any kind of black or white, everything or nothing, binary thinking should be a red flag and evidence that you're you're only banging on a couple of cylinders here, that uh, you're only using a small fraction of your brain anytime you're in this binary mode, fight or flight. What we need to do is remind ourselves that our emotions are not dangerous, they're just confusing. And we need to consciously substitute for fight or flight the relaxation response to calm those emotions and then take a look at them from a mindfully detached place. When you do that, and that's our lesson for the day today, that's what we're going to show you how to do. Not just tell you how to do, but actually walk through it in an exercise. We include a guided imagery meditative exercise in every one of these programs. So we'll not just tell you how to do it, we'll show you how to do it. Let you have the experience of calming your emotional nature. And then the emotions are really quite easy to read or translate or understand. The process, however, is not logical. The process of translating or interpreting the meaning of a current emotional feeling, once you have managed it and allowed yourself to feel safe and calm and, and, and relaxed in its presence. That whole process is, I, again, I've already said mindful detachment. That's really the, the best way to explain it. In other words, you, in a sense, zoom out just a little bit. You, you mindfully detach, meaning you take a step back. You let go of the emotion. You let go of the anger and the stress and the fear that's caused you to hold on to it, to grip it so tightly. Oddly, the experience of being afraid or stressed is that the anxiety is holding on to you. But in fact, you're holding on to it as evidenced by the muscular tension. When you breathe and relax and let it go, take a step back mindfully, deliberately, and then without dissociating, detached, but still associated, you're able to see the bigger picture. You put your attention on the feeling, and you're in it, but not of it. It's like you can see your anger and understand your anger from a place where you're not angry. You can see your heartache and explore your broken heart from a place where your heart is not really broken, where you're not really suffering. That's what mindful detachment is. Some people think it's the same as 
repression or oppression or or suppression of the feeling. And no, not anything like it. It's looking directly at the hurt, the negative feeling. Let me point out, positive feelings don't really need to be understood. A positive feeling is always a reflection of what you already know about yourself and things in general. The negative feeling is the one that needs processing because all fear is fear of the unknown. All negative feelings are fear-based, and they are a reflection of what you do not know about yourself, right? So we need to process the negative to understand and lift the ignorance to understanding and therefore the fear to love, um, the evil to good, you could even say. So that's very much in alignment with Buddhism, with ancient Egyptian alchemy, with the rediscovery of alchemy and the um, sort of an esoteric sense by the Renaissance Europeans and uh, esoteric philosophy in general is full of an expanded understanding of what it means to redeem your emotional feelings, your negative feelings, uh, to save, to resurrect, all right? In other words, that Christian story of resurrection and redemption is not about simply your life upon death but an approach to every problem and every heartache that you have. They all need saving. They all need redeeming. And humanity is really standing at the verge of realizing that you do not kill what seems to oppose you. You redeem it. You save it. If only our response to 9-11 had been to feed the 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 people who were being supported by the Taliban. How did the Taliban get so popular? Well, they fed poor people. <laughs> That's basically what they did. They did charitable works. And, uh, of course, they do horrible things. They're, they, they're a very repressive society, but they knew enough public relations to, to know that you, you get more flies with honey than vinegar. So we go in and we bomb our enemies still as if we're living in the dark ages. And, of course, we make more enemies. This was the lesson of the Bush administration. For every terrorist you kill, you invent ten more, because every son, every daughter, every cousin now um, is going to, you know, uh, take up arms against you because of what you've done and justify it out of revenge. So they don't, you know, terrorists don't hate us for our freedoms. They hate us for what we've done to their relatives and their and their ancestors throughout the ages. So this is uh, an idea of what we mean by love your enemy. It's uh, respond to threats and fear with love and kindness. Uh, we should be dropping, uh, using our B-52 bombers to drop bread and books on people, not explosive devices. That's a little bit of uh, insight into the long-term implications of what happens when you begin to take responsibility for the for the hurt in your life. When you turn away from simply blaming other people for making you feel some way and understand maybe the most important concept in these 
first three uh, classes of the FLY program, which is that feelings, emotional feelings and physical feelings, for that matter, are not done to us so much as evoked from us. This is a very, very, very important process, concept. Your feelings are not done to you so much as they are evoked from you. If I say the same insulting thing to ten people, I'm going to get ten different responses. The hurt that I have caused, the hurt that I have stimulated, is unique to the individual because the hurt is coming out of them in a response to what I've caused, what I've stimulated. Therefore, the hurt is a reflection of them, even though I caused it. I'm telling you, if you can get your brain around this, if you can begin to really take literally this whole concept, that your emotions come from you, your life will never be the same. You'll be liberated in, in, a, in a major way. We already understand this about physical pain. You know, if somebody hits you over the head with a baseball bat and causes a concussion and a big welt, big egg, goose egg comes up on your head, and uh, the doctor says... Uh, where does it hurt? And you say, well, back on Main Street, some joker hit me in the head with a, with a baseball bat. And they said, no, no, not where did you get hurt? Where in your body does it hurt? You say, oh, well, I'm telling you, you got to know the cause, don't you? If you're going to heal my pain, it was caused by this guy over on Main Street. And, yeah, but it's your hurt now, don't you see? The hurt is a response. And therefore, the, the management of that hurt is your responsibility, your ability to choose how am I going to respond to this situation. If our response is merely to blame others, not that it's untrue that others caused your pain. It is true in this case. But it's an incomplete truth. The full truth is somebody else caused it. They hit you on the head with a baseball bat. But the pain is evoked from you and is a direct symptom of your condition. So if that's obvious in physical pain, then why is it somehow less obvious when somebody makes you angry or breaks your heart? Notice how we tend to obsess of the person that upset me, hurt me, or broke my heart. Right? They did it to me. And we slice and dice and parse and reason and rationalize and justify and try to figure out why they would do such a thing. Again, out of this autonomic fight-or-flight response to protect you from it happening again. But to understand the language of feeling is to take ownership and responsibility of the feeling and say it came out of me. And if I want to heal this hurt in an accelerated way, then I have to take ownership of the hurt 
and ask myself, what is this a symptom of in me? Why does it hurt me? Along these lines, I often quote uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, a wonderful quotation of hers I used to have on the wall of my office that said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. She's saying emotionally, nobody can hurt you without your permission. That there's a buy-in, right? You have to basically, if somebody insults you and it hurts, it's because either you agree or you're just not sure. So uh, this is fundamental, this is pivotal, this is a core concept in the whole field of emotional intelligence, the idea of personal responsibility. Actually, life in general is less about what's done to us than what we do with it. You know, we're trying to control the stimulus, like controlling the weather, and you can't do it, but you can control your perception and response. If there was some way that I could just get people to understand this, just walk up to people on the street (laughs) and say your life is not done to you, it's coming out of you. And, well, okay, both things are true. It's a a two-way street. Stuff does happen to you. But the impact of what happens to you, the lasting impact on you and your life, has more to do with how you look at and how you respond to what happens to you than simply what's done to you. Fight it, and nothing changes. Right? Argue for your right to be a helpless victim, and you will be a helpless victim. Sort of the catch-22 of self-fulfilling prophecies. I got nothing to do with this. I was blindsided. They made me hurt. All right, fine. Then, you know... Other people will make you hurt again. But imagine how liberating to respond in a situation like that by wondering, why does that hurt? And you have to arrive at an understanding that some part of me either agrees with the hurt, like they got a point, whatever this insult was, right? Or in most cases, I just don't know. I'm just not sure. So if that makes sense, then we we can move on from there. No question about that. That's the big concept in all of emotional intelligence that you really need to get. Okay, um, then the other point that I touched on but now need to expand upon is that the interpreting, once you do take responsibility for an emotional feeling, the interpreting of its meaning is not and cannot be a matter of logic or reasoning or rational thinking, but rather intuitive in nature. This is the light we talked about a moment ago, whether it's the dawning of a new idea or a light bulb popping on inside your head or being thunderstruck um, a little or a lot there is a feeling of confirmation, of realization, of inspiration that comes with 
processing intuitively our emotional feelings and what they mean. When you when you use the logical mind, there's a sense of resolution, but no feeling of inspiration. If you're, uh, let's say, ordering off a menu, and you decide you'll have the uh, turkey sandwich, or you're deciding which airplane flight to take cross uh, cross country, or um, you know, balancing your checkbook to deduct the checks you just wrote from the balance to arrive at a new balance. There is a sense of completion. There is a point where you get the answer and, and uh, there is a certain release or resolve that goes with there. This is the answer I'm looking for. But intuition, when you get the answer from the light, from opening yourself to this aha experience, uh, you get a whole emotional rush, a whole sense of confirmation, this eureka illumination, again, this aha. It's like you know that's it. There's this whole emotional affect that flows with intuition. That's how we know it's emotional in nature. It needs to be used with the emotions. This whole, boy, yo, 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 <laughs> that's it. Oh, my God. Whether it's a creative idea or a memory or a conceptual understanding, as in emotional intelligence, it just comes bursting into your awareness with this light. But again, the whole idea is you have to do it in a relaxed state. You can't really do it in a um, in a uh, normal consciousness with fifteen thoughts in your mind competing for attention, or or in a state where you're emotionally troubled and in a lot of turmoil. So, if you have any questions or comments, we'll give you an opportunity in just a few minutes to bring those up uh, you can use the telephone number on the page in front of you to call in you can click on the link that says local numbers if you're still paying for long distance telephone by the minute rather than a flat rate you might want to find a number that's your area code so you can make a toll free call we have dozens of numbers phone numbers all over the United States and all you have to do is enter the conference ID. It doesn't matter which phone number you use. Enter the conference ID on that same page in front of you there on the website for this event, and you'll uh, you'll get into the system. And then once you're logged on, press star 2, and that will raise your hand on my console, and I'll be able to call upon you and, uh, open up the uh, telephone lines one at a time. Unmute. This is like a conference call where I can unmute callers one at a time. That's how that works. If I had you all open at the same time, it would be real noisy, really loud, barking dogs and crying babies and people talking in the background. So We've got this cool system where we can unmute you one at a time, but you have to initiate it by raising your hand with star two, 
or if you're on the web feed and listening live, of course, uh, just use the text box on the left side of the page. Ask your question or make your comment and put in your uh, name, at least your first name, the city you're in. Click on Submit. Remember to hit the Submit button. And in a few minutes, we'll go to those questions and comments. All right. So these are the basic concepts. Feelings are not done to you. They come from you. And to understand them, you have to use a state of meditation or self-hypnosis, a safe and relaxed state where you quiet the mind and calm the emotional nature. And we cannot rely on logic, which is deductive in nature and takes things from general to specific. We need to rely on intuition, which moves the other way, from specific to general, and provides us with the big picture, the, the whole enchilada, or as uh, the German word for that is gestalt. There's a whole field of, of psychotherapy called gestalt therapy, founded by Fritz Perls some pretty cool stuff. Those being the basics, I'd like you to consider that the parallel that I drew to emotional pain is a strong parallel. Not only because the feeling, as we've already explained, is evoked from you rather than being done to you, right? The, the the pain in your head from being hit by the baseball bat tells you nothing about the baseball bat, tells you nothing about the person wielding the baseball bat, and yet, in most cases, if it were emotional pain, we would obsess on the person that caused the pain. Instead, we need to understand that the physical pain in this case was caused by a baseball bat and the person that wielded it but the meaning of the pain is to reflect your condition physically. So the same is true emotionally. If somebody makes you angry emotionally or breaks your heart, you're likely to do the same thing, obsess on them and try to figure them out. Why would they say that to me? Why would they do this and, and make me feel this way? Listen to our language make me feel no nobody made you feel this way they stimulated a feeling that is unique to you might be very very similar to what other people would feel in the same situation but nevertheless ultimately unique to you and evoked from you is all about you so the whole idea of uh interpreting the meaning of emotional feelings, the understanding the language of emotional feelings, is to understand the self. You have to make it about you. You have to say this intuitive process I'm about to do is for understanding myself. And that's what your emotions are. Your mental nature, your logical, rational, reasoning mind is objective. Its primary use is to understand everything in the world but you through judgment, comparing, and competition. However, when we apply our thoughts to understanding ourselves, 
doesn't work. We end up just criticizing ourselves, beating ourselves up, finding that we join the chorus of voices that humiliate us and belittle and berate us, right? Because um, that's what the mind does. It is deductive. It's 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 it's, it's going to be self-critical and even self-loathing. It's going to tear you down into little pieces to try to understand you. So, truth is, while the mind is wonderful for understanding things in the world that are not you, like everything else objectively, all the objects around you, objectivity itself, because it makes sense to compare and compete and judge, to contrast things in the world. The mind works pretty well that way, but we've been given a second way of understanding things that is subjective in nature. It's about the subject, which is you. And that second form of intelligence is the emotional intelligence we've been discussing today. It is subjective in nature, and it is primarily about you. How you feel has little or nothing to do with the person, the group, the events or circumstances that stimulated the feeling. Rather, it has everything to do with you. It is your response to that. Your emotional nature is a reflection of the inside of you. So when somebody breaks your heart, the question is, how did I get so vulnerable? Why is my heart so easily broken? Why is my love of self so tenuous and so easily shattered? Or if somebody just makes you angry and upsets you, and pisses you off, say, how'd they do that? These are the questions you ask. They have to be about you. Not why did they do that. That would be about them. How did they do that? How did they get under my skin? And very quickly, your mind will lead you to, well, it must be something I don't understand about myself in order to feel this way. Because this person just said I was a stupid idiot, and it made me angry. I don't like feeling this way. I know I'm not a stupid idiot, so why did it hurt? Because on some level, you do not know that you're a stupid idiot. On some level, you think maybe they got a point. On some level, you may even agree. But at the very least, you're confused and not sure. You don't really know. If you knew, you wouldn't be confused. Again, the anxiety, the stress, the fear is not that you know the insult is true. It's that you're confused. Again, all... All emotional hurt is supported by fear. And all fear is what you don't know about things. And if it's personal, <laughs> as in emotions, then all of your emotional fear is what you don't know about yourself. Right? Know thyself, and you become fearless. Nobody can hurt you or insult you. Life hurts, right? There are things that happen. People you love die. They, people you trust betray you. People will cheat on you and, 
and disappoint you and abandon you. And there's pain and suffering in the world. No question about it. But we can go a long way to minimize it and accelerate the healing process if we just take responsibility for the emotion and understand it. Okay, We talked about this in session one with self-love. That love is understanding how lovable you are, right? You don't need other people to love you. You'll always want to love other people and want to have other people love you. But if you need another person's love, it's a pretty good indication that you're lacking self-love. That's our first lesson. Then we talked last week about healing our emotional hurt from childhood and the false assumptions that we bring into our adulthood carried over from the confusion of being a little kid and told literally that not only is your behavior bad, but you are bad. You are a bad little boy. You're rotten. You're no good. The kids take that literally. Until you're about 12 years old, you don't even develop a subjective, uh, a, an objective mind. The first 10, 12 years of life, you're very much into the subconscious and the subjective nature. The world is about you. And if somebody's angry, then they're angry at you. You know, children go way out of their way to blame themselves for everything. Mom and Dad can sit you down as a 10-year-old and say, this has nothing to do with you. We're just not getting along and we're going to divorce. But Mommy and Daddy still love you. And it has nothing to do with you. It's not because you're bad. It doesn't matter what they say. The kid will go to his room and spend the next few years of his life, maybe all of his life to some extent, wondering how he caused that divorce. And if only he'd been a better little boy and not such a bad boy that his parents would never divorce. The, the assurances from parents don't mean anything. The proof's in the pudding. Like, uh, kids will go, as I say, way out of their way uh, to hold themselves responsible for things that they are not responsible for. Kids are emotionally dependent. The tragedy is that when a child doesn't get their needs met, doesn't get enough love in childhood, then they become an adult that never makes the transition into emotional independence. And they suffer an arrested development emotionally and spend the rest of their lives often, their entire lives, as if they were children, blaming other people for how they feel. And... Um, at the same time, blaming themselves for their inability to please other people. And that emotional dependence that is called codependency. Codependence or codependency, which means I'll be in charge of making you feel good and loved and feel pleasant around me and uh, even protect you from hurt if you'll do that for me. I'll drive your car if you drive my car. I'll be responsible for your feelings if you'll only be responsible for my feelings. And there are coded groups, like AA groups, Codependence Anonymous, where people are addicted to this. I, I had a letter 
from a woman this week who was basically trapped between trying to please a codependent mother and trying to please a codependent boyfriend. And she was trapped because she needed to please them both. And if she pleased one, her mother, the boyfriend was going to be upset. And if she pleased the boyfriend, then the mother would feel hurt and abandoned. And she wanted to make everybody happy. And I said, where do you fit in? (laughs) But what about you? And, you know, it's very easy and very common to do is just fall into this situation of my life is about pleasing other people, and that's my job. No, as a child, that's your job. But let's grow up and become adults who put ourselves first, not in a selfish way, but in a responsible way. The example I gave this woman a few days ago, and one I've used in classrooms and on the radio for years, is the oxygen mask on the airplane, where every time you get on a commercial airliner, you are reminded that in an emergency, if if these air masks drop, put yours on first, secure it, make sure it works, and then go about helping other people. Now, why is that not selfish? People will say, well, because you die, <laughs> you know, try to, you're not going to be of any help to other people if you don't take care of yourself first. Exactly. So if you know that about oxygen masks and airplanes, then why is that so hard to see in terms of your responsibility for the way you feel emotionally in life? Meet your own needs. Put yourself first. And then, You've empowered yourself and enabled yourself, in the best sense of the word enable, to be of service and value to other people. That's not selfish. It's enlightened self-interest or enlightened responsibility. Okay. I think short of doing the technique, that's pretty much the overview of the language of feelings. So let's go to your questions and your comments, and we'll uh, go through those, and then we'll actually do the exercise that will help you to understand this a little bit better. So if you're on the telephone and and have a question, press star 2 on your um, telephone uh, handset, and uh, let me find that cough button again. Not very professional to tell you I'm using a cough button, is it? And uh, see, where's my Q&A? Okay, here we go. Let's start with the text questions and answers. See who we have on here today. Uh, Phil Joffe from Logo Park. And Phil, I'm not making any sense. I'm going to subscribe to the free podcast. And then he says, sense, please, S-E-N-S-E. That doesn't make sense to you. Phil, you'll have to send me a, an email that we can deal with personally because I don't know what, it, what you're asking me. I'd be happy to tell you how to subscribe to the podcast. What you need is a podcatcher. 
sometimes called an aggregator. Whether you're using a PC or a Mac, it doesn't really matter. There is many different pod catchers or aggregators. And uh, the best known, of course, is iTunes. That's a free download for PC or Mac at Apple.com. It's the way many people choose to organize all of their music. And it also has built into it one of these podcatchers. So you go into the iTunes store where there's a directory of tens of thousands of podcasts. And anyone you like, you click subscribe. And when you open your iTunes music management program on your computer, there's a podcast folder in there. And all the programs will be dropped in. Think of a podcast as an automatic download, right? It seems like they're being pushed into your computer. Actually, your computer goes out and searches for them every so often if you subscribe to them. And then every time you go to your iTunes music folder and open it up or your podcatcher of choice and open it up, all the new programs will be in there. Uh, It's very, very cool. And uh, if that's challenging um, or difficult, uh, initially all this new stuff is a little intimidating. Uh, Find somebody under 25 uh, to show you how to do it, because younger people are totally podcast-oriented. They can help you do that. Carol Postel's with us in La Habra. Hello, Carol. Haven't heard from you in a while. She says, uh, oh, she says as much. Missed the last couple of weeks because of Mother's Day last week, and uh, her computer was offline the week before. So welcome back, Carol. Nice to hear from you. Jacob Martin is with us from England, from the U.K., as he calls it, the United Kingdom. Hello, Jacob. I haven't seen you in a while. Thanks for coming back. He says, peace and greetings, Michael, and much love across the ocean. A couple of oceans, actually, were... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or across the North Pole. Thanks, Jacob. I know it's uh, late at night where you are. Let's see what time it is. About 9 o'clock, I think, in the evening. In Long Beach, Christina says, I don't really understand how to apply this uh, pain-comes-out-of-me theory in my love relationship. I've been married for over 13 years, and uh, I got more and more alone in our relationship. My husband looks more interested in his life, like his job, all the games on TV, etc. And no time spent with me at all. I've been trying to talk with him about us and our feelings, but he considers me weird and by talking out of reality. So how can I heal my pain? All emotional pain, Christina, needs to be understood before it can be healed. And again, healing is a process that takes time. Some emotional hurt takes longer to heal, in other words, to understand fully, than other emotional hurt. But ownership is part of it. Notice how in your question, though it's short, you're talking about both your feelings and your husband. 
Your husband is stimulating or causing the feelings. But you say, I don't understand understand the pain comes out of me. Well, yeah, you do. Just slow everything down for a second. Consider that even though your husband, by his disinterest, by his calling you weird, or trying to pretend you're the one with the problem but not being sensitive, I mean, why would he not care enough to say, are you in pain? Is there something I can do? Why would he just dismiss you? But there's only so far you can go in trying to understand him. That's not your job. Your job, first of all, is to understand yourself. And why does this hurt? Well, you know, I, I, can, I can't say specifically why you hurt in this situation, except... It feels like love betrayed, you know, unrequited. Your husband may say that he loves you, he may act like he loves you, but he may not know how to show it. I don't know. Uh, You know, marriage counseling uh, can take months and even years to work through. But, uh, you know, short of just sending you off and telling you you should get counseling, and that the two of you should uh, sit down and find a good therapist, I, I think the best thing that I can tell you is that if you understood, let me put it to you this way, if you understood the way you appreciate love and your particular profile, and then after that, secondly, understood your husband's profile of what causes him to feel loved and loving and lovable, you can have better communication. So there's a wonderful book available. You can remember the authors of Bruce Campbell, the, the Styles of Loving. Sorry, I'm trying to pull it off the top of my head. But more importantly, I can tell you what he suggests are the five essential or primary ways that love is appreciated. One is through, and you might want to even write this down, because you could benefit from just pondering on it. The five ways that people want to be loved are number are in no particular order. Number one, words. They like being told. For other people, it might not be all that important. They might in their life say, well, talk is cheap. You say you love me, but you know, how do I know that that means anything? So and then the first person says, yeah, but I tell you every day I love you. Well, that'll work if words is one of the ways that you like feeling loved, that you appreciate being loved. Words is one. Uh, action is another Again, actions often speak louder than words. So how do you like to be loved? Through words, I love you, or action. You know, you uh, walk in the room and your husband is folding the towels or uh, washing some dishes, and you didn't even ask him to. Uh, You know, that's foreplay for a lot of women. That's just action. (laughs) That's what I want. The third is gifts. Some people, men and women, just that's the biggest thing you could do 
to help them feel loved and loving and lovable is to give them gifts. Uh, the fourth, again, in no particular order, is time, just time spent. This sounds like this might be important to you. And touch is the fifth. Um, hands held, um, cuddling on the sofa while you watch TV instead of two people sitting in separate wing-back chairs. Get yourselves side-by-side side with your arms around each other and you know, under a blanket or whatever, if it's chilly enough outside, and, and uh, holding hands or just massaging shoulders or or cuddling, and of course making love is important for this reason. It's uh, it creates quite a bond. So these are the five uh, languages of love, <laughs> the five ways to express love: words, action, gifts, time, and touch. Order those. What's the most important for you? What's the second most important? What's the third most important? And then ask for that. Go to your husband and say, you know, I listened to Michael Sunday and he talked about this book and these five different ways to express love. And I realized what's most important to me in feeling loved by you, my husband, after all these years, is one of these five. And the second most important is, and you name the second one, right? And then ask your husband to do the same thing. Say, choose words, actions, gifts, time, touch, what's important to you. And have him close his eyes and relax. And think about it for a minute. Don't settle for just what comes off the top of his head, especially if he's defensive. Try and get him in a in a time when he's not going to be defensive. That's what he's doing with this account that you gave me by saying you're weird, it's your problem. You know, that's just defensive. He, does, he doesn't know why he is the way he is, but you can help him ask for how he wants to be loved. Uh, I think many couples really would benefit from a weekly, uh, it could be an hour or less, but just at least once a week to sit down and talk about how to work through problems in the relationship. How do we stoke the love in the relationship? How do we keep it alive? Because we enter into most of our romantic relationships and even our, our marriages as victims of love. We fell into love. We were swept off our feet and carried away by love. And that may last for 90 days, and it may last for a year, but uh, maybe even two years. <laughs> but pretty soon, usually about the fourth month, uh, because we play victim of love, our empty spots come back, and we gave our partner credit for filling us. And now that our empty spots are coming back, we blame the partner for no longer filling us, like you stopped loving me. Well, no, I didn't. I love you as much as ever, you see. We never took responsibility for our love in the first place. So that's something to consider. Ask for what it is that you want. Your husband may not know. You may not know what it takes to make you feel loved, which of those five is most important to you. But as you discern it, you can ask for it, right? 
And if your husband continues to dismiss you and write you off as weird, he's being defensive, he's being uh, uh, cowardly about this, in which case, again, you could get angry and threatening, but it'd probably be a better approach to stay soft and vulnerable and kind and ask for some professional counseling. Most of what's needed in this kind of a situation is just good communication, right? And uh, most marriages do not have that. Wish I could spend more time on that, Christina. But uh, the whole idea that the pain comes out of you, like if you feel that your husband doesn't love you, it's possible that some part of that, 10%, 90%, 50%, comes from feeling unloved in the first place or unlovable. Right? Maybe you were never sure why your husband loved you. Ask him, why do you love me? Why did you used to love me? What's lovable about me? be interesting to know the answers to those questions, wouldn't it? So... There you go. Good luck to you. And if I can help you further, send me an email and, uh, or call my uh, my service. My phone number is, I've, I've kept an L.A. exchange, and it's remarkable how much we can do over the telephone these days. So you can always leave me a message, any one of you, at 818-569-3017. Again, forgive me if I sound a little nasally, 818 818- Five six nine three zero one seven. Anytime, twenty four seven. It's a service call. Anytime, leave me a message with your phone number and a good time to get back to you. Or email me at my initials at theagelesswisdom.com. MB at theagelesswisdom.com. Lorelai is with us in Tucson. Hello, Lorelai. Nice to hear from you. Keep your papers handy. You never know in Arizona when they're going to pull you over there. She says, aloha, great class, peace and love to you and Doreen. Just teasing Lorelai. It's a beautiful state. Sorry about the rednecks and uh, the legislature there. So many good people in Arizona. The whole state gets smeared because of the influence of these uh, archaic, obsolete, ultra-conservatives. Isn't it interesting how even blatant racism can be justified politically? And Irvine Kasha's with us today. Hey, Kasha. He says, hello, Michael. Although I keep up with the podcast, it's great to hear you live again. I've been traveling a lot lately. Love to you and Doreen and all our fellow travelers. Nice to hear from you, buddy. I, I knew you were listening to the replay, but... Uh, Real happy to hear you're out there with us live today. Also in Pasadena, T-Berry says, uh, how can I make myself know that I am okay? And it does not matter what others think of me. I'm not sure that they are talking or looking at me, but I feel they are. Yeah, that's always the case. It's, you know, fear, anxiety, stress is rarely about something you know. It's not that you know that you're bad or weak or wrong or stupid <laughs> or unlovable. It's that you don't know. And the confusion is what stress is. All fear is fear of the unknown. It's the not knowing that is the point. 
actually, if you do your defective or weak or wrong uh, in some area, you could accept that, right? Uh, it'd be even easier to accept. It's it's the not knowing that really makes it difficult. And uh, again, today's class is how to know yourself, how to understand what your feelings say about you. So. How to know is to stay with us for a couple of more minutes. I'll demonstrate the technique, and then you just practice it. Again, reasoning, logical, rational thinking will be of very little value to you. It's the intuitive nature that we can access in meditative, contemplative states of mind, where the thoughts are quiet and the emotions are managed, calm, peaceful, that you realize that you facilitate this aha experience, and you become aware of the truth about you. And then the more you know about yourself, doesn't it make that, doesn't it make sense that it would matter less and less what other people think if you knew the truth? You know, if somebody says that, um, I don't know, what would be an example? I was going to say that uh, Barack Obama has no birth certificate and he's really from Mars. Uh, and you know better. Does it really matter what this moron thinks Barack's from Mars or Kenya? <laughs> uh, maybe that's not such a good example. But if it were about you and you know this to be true, you know, an example is you're stupid. Somebody thinks you're stupid. They may even say that, or maybe they imply it. Well, if it hurts, it's because some part of you doesn't know the truth. If it hurts, it's because some part of you thinks maybe they got a point. And as you understand, I'm not a stupid person. There may be some people smarter than me in one area or another, but I'm a pretty bright guy, actually, now that I look at it. And so the next time somebody says you're stupid, it just bounces off, you know, like bullets off a Superman. It's just water off a duck's back. It's like, well, you're making a fool out of yourself by talking to me that way because I know it's not true. You can actually go through anger to compassion. You can feel sorry for the person trying to build themselves up by bringing you down. It's pathetic. And you don't have to defend yourself because you know the truth of yourself. Then it's easier to have compassion for this is love your enemy stuff. Okay, This will help you get some insight into what that love your enemy stuff is all about. Christians talk about it, but not many of them really get it. And uh, Patricia in Los Angeles says, uh, Aloha, I just got in, but I'll listen to the replay. Uh, sounds like a great class. Aloha, have a great day. And uh, that's Patricia, who's been with us regularly on our Thursday night video conference. I want to remind you about that. It's in the newsletter every week, and if you're not getting the newsletter, go to our website, theagelesswisdom.com and on the original splash page you see a big button for the free newsletter 
And uh, you can unsubscribe anytime. It's easy to unsubscribe if you don't really like it. But why don't you get a subscription and find out what's in there? That'll tell you about our social net, theagelesswisdom.ning.com, which is like Facebook for listeners of this show and others who are into uh, interested in personal and spiritual development. Join that community. Um, you find our newsletter blog and comment blog, the other programs that we're doing, the free ebooks and text articles. And the Thursday night video conference, you'll find out how to join us for that. That starts at 6.30 L.A. time, 9.30 on the East Coast every Thursday night. And uh, tells you what you need to do to uh, to come on into that. So you may enjoy that. It's like a discussion group. And uh, all you need is a webcam and a microphone. It's very cool. Very cool. All right, let me check the telephone, see if anybody has their hand raised. I do have callers. Whoop, that's the wrong button. Hold on. <laughs> Here we go. I do have some callers. Um, oh, let's see. I got one hand up. That's uh, Robert. So let's go to Robert and uh, give my voice a little rest. Hello, Robert. You're at the Wisdom School with Michael. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Uh Sorry you're feeling a little bit under the weather there, Michael. Well, actually, I feel better than I felt all week and thought my voice was good and strong, but turns out it's got a little tickle back there. So I'll rest it while you talk for a minute. Yeah. Hey, uh, if I may, uh, this uh, sounds like an opportune time for a good metaphor. Nothing succeeds like a great metaphor. And you were speaking earlier about... Uh, constantly you know noticing that people have got it backwards they're trying to control the stimuli which is impossible right and uh one of the one of the people who used to use a quote a lot uh, one of my favorite quotes that uh has been used by a lot of teachers but is attributed ultimately to Shanti Deva the great Tibetan I could read it to 100 words but basically he equates he he likens uh, controlling the stimuli to covering the earth with leather right. and likens controlling your own mind with putting on shoes. Right. And you just put some leather on your shoes and you've created the same effect. So, you know, I'm sure that you, I've noticed a lot, and I'm sure you run into a conflict where people ask you, well, why meditate? Why do I have to practice? Why do I have to practice mind control? Why do I have to practice mindfulness? Why do I have to do that? Well, this is why. Because you you can't ever control the external stimuli, but you can learn to control the mind, and if you do, you accomplish the same end as controlling all the stimuli. And if that's not a reason to... Uh, Put a put a little effort in. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I um, I appreciate you bringing this to my attention one other time a few months ago because I was quoting Ramana Maharshi, and he probably said it. This has been it's been quoted by a lot of teachers. Yeah, uh, but you pointed out to me that it was actually goes back uh, what eight hundred or a thousand years. Yeah, to Shanti I believe it was in the eighth century. Yeah, eighth century uh, North India. What would 
That was North India then. I guess it would be Nepal now. I'm not sure, but it definitely is a beautiful allegory. You know, and besides, other people may not want their world covered with leather. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, then you get into the whole, you know, totality. When you when you wind up with somebody with that kind of mentality, you get a Stalin, you get a Hitler, a Pol Pot, a Mao Zedong. You get somebody who who wants their idea of the world, how things should be, to be everybody's. Right. Um, you know, it doesn't work, obviously. Yeah, these are the political uh, corporate leaders that say. Uh, uh, trust us, we'll cover the world with the leather for you. Yeah, and, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 demagogues of free enterprise. <laughs> and there's nothing free about it. No, no, it's really it's really costly. I, I don't know. Boy, well, it's not this related, is, but this. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that this. Uh, you know, to the extent that good can come out of bad, but uh, I'm hoping that people start to wake up uh, when they realize uh, the full extent, the magnitude of this catastrophe down in the Gulf. Uh, looking at a report out of Reuters uh, this morning, they've found now, you know, underneath the surface of the water, <laughs> they've found these immense oil plumes miles and miles long and thousands of feet deep, up to a mile wide. So it isn't just this little slick of oil on the surface. If you think of a volcano erupting and you think of that huge smoke bloom, we'll just put that underwater now. Yeah, not just any volcano. This is Krakatoa. Yeah, it's it's an immense amount of oil. The the 5,000 barrels a day was just some little... Tagline that BP put out there, knowing the press would repeat it. You know, like uh, you know, like uh, windsocks. And uh, but the reality is, it may be twenty, twenty-five. Nobody knows. The equivalent of an Exxon Valdez every four days. Essentially, essentially, yeah, so it's it, going to be it's going to be a disaster. Another thing nobody's talking about is that you know this can ultimately get picked up as it expands. It can be picked up by the Gulf Stream, and all these politicians and lobbyists, uh, you know, who are whores for the oil industry, may have to reconsider their point of view when this stuff starts lapping up in Oyster Bay. <laughs> yeah. Because that's well, where it's going. You know, Shell just got approval this week for five of these north of Alaska. Unbelievable. Where pack ice and shifting icebergs would make a similar spill impossible to clean up and impact uh, the last of these uh, really sensitive uh, echo zones. and It's madness. and I, I think people don't appreciate it for a couple of reasons. Number one, most of our news, uh, electronic and print, is sponsored by the oil companies and other huge corporations. Yeah. Uh, so I can tell you as a broadcaster what happens when you start doing bad news about a sponsor. Oh, you, you suddenly your, your radio station is in jeopardy. Yeah, they kick you, the boss kicks your door in and threatens your whole family. Uh, you're just not allowed to do that. So you'll notice that CNN, that even MSNBC is still brought to you by these oil companies and drug companies and uh, but I think the second reason was it's terrifying to consider. Um, 
what's happening, the scale on which it's happening, the implications and how little power we have. The truth is that we have enormous power. We have much more power than the oil companies, but it requires us to be well-educated, to face our fear, uh, to be outraged, not, not angry in a destructive, vengeful way, but angry in a way that can be channeled into enlightenment. Um, um, I think we have a responsibility to talk to members of our families that are more establishment-oriented and, and still afraid that if they take any kind of position against big business that, that they're un-American, that they can't wave the flag anymore. It's all been so convoluted and corrupted by politics. Um, there could be a real groundswell, but uh, uh, I, I don't know. This is just, the, the, we're just guessing at the impact. A week after Woodstock, we didn't even understand the impact of Woodstock. And so at this time, you know, we don't know. We'll visit this issue in a year or two. I mean, we'll be cleaning this up for decades. This this is much bigger than anything that uh, environmental disaster than anything that happened. This is Bhopal on steroids. This is Chernobyl to the tenth power. Um, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who will suffer and die as a result. Not just the eleven that were killed, but this is a life support system, and when the plants and the animals and the life support system die off. Bucky Fuller said it's like rivets coming out of the airplane you're flying in. You know, you, maybe five or six rivets come out and you're still okay, but you never know when that one final rivet pops out and the whole thing comes apart. And that's what we're standing on the brink of. It's, I'm glad you brought it up. It's distressing. It really is. So, again... How do we take responsibility? We don't blame ourselves for the oil leak. We could, but again, let's talk about what is my response. Do I finally sit down with those people in my family that don't get it and explain Ecology 101? Do I tell them that we don't want to keep burning oil and fossil fuels and stealing the future from our children and grandchildren that... We've got nuclear power in the sky, this giant fusion generator 93 million miles away called the sun. And we can collect uh, energy from solar panels and the wind. And they hear George Will talking about the dangers of, uh, of aero generators and how the windmills will kill more birds than the oil platform. It's just insane. <laughs> yeah, it's, have it's, to put up with. Yeah, people would argue that side of on that side of the fence are just corporate hacks. You know, I everybody that argues in favor of continuous exploration and drilling and utilization of fossil fuels uh, can be shown to be paid by uh, the oil companies, either directly or indirectly, and, and virtually no one on the other side uh, receives uh, that kind of a payoff. It, it's you know, there, there, there is no clear situation uh, that I can think of of, of of 
of scientists and uh, you know people that uh, well really should be telling the truth have been bought off wholesale. But again, you got to be fairly well educated and knowledgeable in current events to realize that. You know that. I know that. I'm sure most of the people that listen to this class know that, but the majority of our neighbors don't know that yet. They aren't that well educated, and that's something we can do instead of just getting angry and and uh, you know boiling inside, which is going to just going to eat us up. Uh, to channel that anger and that frustration into something really positive, educate the people in our families and our neighbors who are still ignorant. So much of what passes for left-wing, right-wing politics is people who read books and people who don't read, people who think and those people who don't want to think, people who promote change and those people that want to go back to the Dark Ages. And I know who's going to win in the long run if there is a long run. If we, let, if, we, if we survive long enough, the progressives always win. The question is, will we survive? You know, as an Earth plant. The Earth yeah. will survive. I don't know about the humans. But uh, it's a good lesson with empowerment. There, there is lots we can do, even if only to educate people. Robert, how about a parting shot? Uh, well, I couldn't have said it better myself. And uh, in, in all fairness to the to the, all those other people out there who who uh, don't know, uh, some of them don't know simply because they're being blitzed out of existence uh, by a, uh, a government and a financial elite that wants to keep people pressed down and in survival mode and if you're you remember what is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh-huh. if you're if you're you know if you're down in survival mode then all this other stuff doesn't come up that's right uh and that's uh i don't think that's an accident i believe and i've always believed that's by design that's my it is show. yeah sure hey aloha and get better man thank you man i'm getting better as we speak Outstanding. And um, hello and aloha to you as well. Thanks for calling. Aloha. Robert's in West Hollywood, uh, West Los Angeles, I'm sorry, in West L.A. And uh, let's do our uh, exercise, our visualization. Again, that may seem like a tangent, but I don't mind going there at all. It's on the minds of so many people. And again, a nice metaphor. We cannot personally control what's being done to us. You can't put the oil back in the ground, right? They screwed it up. Uh, If you're going to vote for oil people, Bush and Cheney, to run the government, they're going to turn it over to the oil companies. And if you're going to put the richest multi-multi-millionaires in charge of your government, uh, they're going to favor their friends, who are going to be other rich and powerful and often corrupt people. So our power is not in opposing that. Not really. It's in managing your perception and response. So educate yourself and then inform other people. That's very powerful stuff. Do teach-ins. Uh, get involved. You want to make a difference in your world and your job doesn't feel like it offers you an opportunity to 
really contribute to society in a positive way? Get involved in this. You say, I don't like politics. Well, this isn't politics. This is somebody's poisoning the life support system on purpose for money. <laughs> it's cheap. They didn't have the backup uh, emergency valve because it would have cost $500,000. A company that makes, let's see, what is there? They make roughly, BP makes roughly 25 to $30 billion a year, but they didn't want to pay $500,000 for the safety valve, and Bush had changed the regulations, so they didn't need to. If, uh, oh, you, you <laughs> they fly the flag of the Marshall Islands, where there's no regulation at all. So it's very frustrating and makes you angry. But just don't stop there. Don't be limited to yelling at the television during the news. Get involved in a non-political way by educating yourself. That's your response. And then sharing it with other people, what you know. There are people in your family that you can educate. There's other people, friends and neighbors of yours, that you can educate. Stay out of politics. Stay out of religion. You don't need to go to politics or religion. This is a life support system. Use Bucky Fuller's spaceship allegory. If we were on a spaceship, right, zooming through space, and you found somebody that was making money by dumping poison into the life support system, you'd throw them overboard, right? <laughs> You wouldn't give them a award and make them the head of the whole ship. And so we need to throw a few people overboard here. Figuratively, of course. Figuratively. Okay, let's uh, do our exercise here. Our, our lesson again is um, the language of feelings. I've said that's in, that it is intuitive and, and not logical. So this is a very passive exercise. It's about letting the answers bubble up into your awareness as you sit safe and relaxed. And the more you quiet the mind and calm the emotional nature, the greater will be the realization. It'll come sooner. It'll come in ever bigger and bigger pieces. You could get one big thunderous aha, or it could be several smaller insights or revelations or a word I like for this is realization. This is what makes life real, to realize the truth of things based not on logic, tearing things down into little pieces, deductive thinking, but by intuition, which is this whole different bubbling up, bursting into the awareness like the little bubbles in the in the champagne that float up and then burst on, on the surface of the champagne glass. That's how intuition works. It's it's intelligence that effervesces. And with that, let's get comfortable. Providing this is a good time for you, prop up some pillows, sit back. Take a nice, slow, deep breath or two. It's the breath 
that is the very first indication to the brain that you are, in fact, safe. Slow, deep breathing. And you focus really on letting go, a feeling in your body of letting go as you exhale. So as you pull in air, you can think of pulling in strength and power without any tension. And then as you exhale, you let go even deeper and more relaxed. Do that two, three, four times. Nice, slow, deep breaths. Each breath will be a little slower and a little longer, ideally through the nose. And then turn your breathing over to autopilot. Place your attention gently in the bottom of the nose and watch your body breathe itself all by itself. Single pointed awareness, thinking of only one thing your breathing. And in this way, we slow down the mind. Consider any other thought a distraction and let it go and just gently place your attention back in the bottom of the nose. And watch your body all by itself, breathing. Every once in a while, I like to remind you that if you did nothing else for 10, 20 minutes, 30 minutes or more, but just watch your breath in this way. That will grow you spiritually. That will develop your character and personality. It will refine naturally your ethics and your values, your morals and principles. Maybe hard to believe, but you don't need to judge it or even think about it. Slow everything down by being really fascinated to watch your body breathe itself almost as if it wasn't even your body. Hey, look at that body over there breathing itself. Your focus is right on the point the bottom of the nose where the air enters and leaves the body. And it is the feeling of safe and relaxed. Muscles unwinding feel the letting go. And the gentle fixation of attention at that little point bottom of the nose where you watch your breath that creates the state of expanded awareness the state of inner peace focused attention focused passion where you can see what you otherwise would never have seen 
begin to understand and realize little by little that which would never have occurred to you with 15 thoughts and a whole bunch of emotions all competing for your attention. So I'd like you to think of a time in the last couple of days in your real-world life and affairs when you were hurt or upset. In just the last couple of days, a time when somebody hurt you or upset you or caused some sort of negative feeling. Some pain or displeasure emotionally. Doesn't have to be a big deal. It could be something simple. Some guy cuts you off in traffic or somebody said something to you that sounded really rude and insulting. You didn't say anything right away, but later you looked back on it and said, ow, that hurt. And ever since, you've been trying to figure out why they would talk to you that way. You tried to understand them. Whether it was someone you knew well or an absolute stranger, the tendency when we're hurt emotionally is to use fight or flight to know the enemy. Who hurt us? Why'd they do that? How can I get them? And instead, what we're suggesting is you accept responsibility for the hurt. You take ownership. This hurt that you're remembering now, this one particular incident from the last few days, you realize was evoked from you. Just as if somebody hit you with a baseball bat, the pain was a reflection of your condition. It says much more about you than the stimulus. How is it that they hurt you so? What part of the insult or the upsetting behavior confuses you? But there's only so far logic and reasoning can take you, and then we need to go farther still. So what I want you to do is move your awareness down into your body and take another slow, deep breath as you do this, feeling even more safe and relaxed. And you let your awareness sink down into your body. And you feel about in the body for the area that hurts. For emotional feelings are felt between the heart and the base of the spine. Somewhere in your torso, between the heart and the base of the spine, you'll feel the particular emotional feeling or set of feelings, combination of feelings from this one particular incident that you've settled upon that happened in just the last few days. So be certain.
certain you're clear on which hurt, which incident you're going to focus on. And let that feeling come up, remember it, recall it effortlessly. Move your awareness from your head down into your body. Feel the emotional feeling in your body. Allow yourself to feel it fully and completely. Rather than hold it at an arm's length, let it come upon you. Let it come over you. It might even seem like it's consuming you. Fear not, for you are a spiritual being of love and light, and you're made for this. This is what you're for. Let the feelings, even though they're hurtful feelings, have their way with you and come upon you. And then ask yourself silently and internally if this particular feeling or combination of feelings had a color, what color would it be? And trust your very first impression. And if you find that you're saying to yourself, well, I, I can't think of any color, they're all flashing, then don't think of a color. Let it occur to you, and one will stand above the rest. One will demand your attention. But we resist the temptation to give it a meaning. For to do so would be to use logic again. And so instead of trying to interpret, well, this feeling causes me to see red or blue or green or yellow or chartreuse. What does that mean? Let that go. And just stay with the color. And instead, imagine yourself carefully and tentatively reaching out to touch that color for texture and temperature. How does it feel to the touch? And again, because you're nice and relaxed and feeling safe, the mind, rather than jumping around to a bunch of different ideas, should pretty simply tell you, well, this color feels to the touch as if it had this texture and this temperature. And again, resist any temptation to use the logical mind, the mental nature, to discern what that might mean. No, instead, just say this emotional feeling of hurt or upset occurs to me as if it's this color and, and to the touch has this kind of texture, and this temperature. And then imagine gathering that all up like it was a big bed sheet or something you pulled out of the dryer and you wad it up into a ball. You bring it in, pull it in, get all the edges and the corners tucked in, work it around in your hands and compress it down, this colorful, 
ball now it's becoming with the same texture and the same temperature and the same color but you're working it down from beach ball size to basketball size down to softball maybe baseball size a colorful ball that you hold in one hand and it represents your emotional feelings in this particular case and you throw it high and far away as far away as you can. And when it lands, there's a great concussion, an explosion of smoke and fog. And in a moment, a character will come forward out of that smoke and fog. It could be a person from fiction or history, real or imagined, living or dead, man or a woman. Someone you know, someone you don't know. If it's someone you know, thank them for coming, but ask them to stay on the side. It's too literal. Go with the impression of someone you don't know. Imagine another character coming, if that's the case. Could be a cartoon character or an animal, but trust that first impression. And you ask... Three simple questions. What is your name? How do I refer to you? And you wait patiently for an answer. The second question is, what is my personal growth lesson from this particular feeling or set of feelings? You are a symbol of these feelings. From this one particular incident. So tell me, what can I learn about myself from these emotions I'm going through? From this hurt, from this upset, from this anger, from this fear? Second question, what's my personal growth lesson? And you wait for an answer. The character will tell you, speak to you. Maybe show you something. Maybe take you someplace. Trust your first impression. The third question you ask this character or being is how can I remember what you're teaching me the next time I'm in a similar situation? And you don't figure anything out. You sit quietly, passively, and wait for this character to answer your question. First, what is your name? Secondly, what's my personal growth lesson from these feelings? And third, how can I remember what you're teaching me here today? Next time I'm in a similar situation, next time I have similar feelings. And after each of those questions, you sit and wait. Unfortunately, we don't have the time today to do this process now. And without you sitting in front of me as an individual so we can have some back and forth, it's hard to do more than show you how to go through the process. So you have to practice this on your own. And when you get these three answers, you thank the character with a hug and receive from them a gift. Some symbolic token to help you remember the lesson forevermore.
And again, you trust your first impression. The first thing that pops into your mind, that's your gift. What does it mean? Ask yourself. Your intuition will make it up. If you're not sure, ask the character. What does this gift mean that you're giving to me? And then bring your gift back to the waking state. Tell yourself you can do this. You may have bits and pieces of the answer already. You can repeat this exercise for this incident and this set of feelings and for any other. and get better and better at understanding the language of your feelings. I want you now to reorient yourself to the sound of my voice. To remember the room you'll see when you open your eyes in a moment. To feel the chair, the sofa, the cushion upon which you sit. Take a nice, slow, deep breath. Hold as you peek. Now as you exhale, open your eyes wide awake and alert, back in the room, feeling rested and refreshed, with a full memory and a deep understanding of what we've done. Friends, this uh, class is set to end at two hours, so I've got about 60 seconds to say mahalo and aloha, thank you, and goodbye. Uh, really appreciate you being here. Uh, I pulled my headset out in the middle of that, so you may have noticed a change in tone in my voice in the midst of that. Plus, with my stuffy nose and my laryngitis and my whining and complaining, I... Uh, I apologize and appreciate your tolerance. I hope you'll join us next week. And and, uh, also visit our sister site at focusedpassion.com. Check out those premium audios. Get a free account with a name and an email address. And then when you log in, there will be six free programs in the built-in player you can check out. Steve and I together, the best stuff we're doing. And it's all studio quality, includes a meditation exercise. And it's yours for just 99 cents or subscribe for 3.96 a month, 99 cents a week at Focused Passion. There's an ED in there, focusedpassion.com. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. Aloha. From Maui, this is Michael Benner.